section thirteen of a history of our own times volume three by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter thirty six the end of john company part two lord canning continued his policy the policy which he had marked out for himself with signal success the actual proclamation had little or no effect as punishment on the landholders of oued it was never intended by lord canning that it should have any such in fact within a few weeks after the capture of lucknow almost all the large landowners had tendered their allegiance lord canning impressed upon his officers the duty of making their rule as considerate and conciliatory as possible the new system established in oued was based upon the principle of recognizing the talukdars as responsible landholders while so limiting their power by the authority of the government as to get rid of old abuses and protect the occupiers and cultivators of the soil the rebellion had abundantly proved that the village communities were too feeble and broken to hold the position which had been given with success to similar communities in the punjab it should be remembered in considering lord canning's policy that a proprietary right by whatever name it may be distinguished or disguised has always been claimed by the government of india it is only parted with under leases or settlements that are liable to be revised and altered the settlements which lord canning effected in india easily survived the attacks made upon their author they would have been short-lived indeed if they had not long survived himself as well canning like durham only lived long enough to hear the general acknowledgment that he had done well for the country he was sent to govern and for the country in whose name and with whose authority he went forth the rebellion pulled down with it a famous old institution the government of the east india company before the mutiny had been entirely crushed the rule of john company came to an end the administration of india had indeed long ceased to be under the control of the company as it was in the days of warren hastings a board of directors nominated partly by the crown and partly by the company sat in leadenhall street and gave general directions for the government of india but the parliamentary department called the board of control had the right of reviewing and revising the decisions of the company the crown had the power of nominating the governor-general and the company had only the power of recalling him this odd and perhaps unparalleled system of double government had not much to defend it on strictly logical grounds and the moment a great crisis came it was natural that all the blame of difficulty and disaster should be laid upon its head with the beginning of the mutiny the impression began to grow up in the public mind here that something of a sweeping nature must be done for the reorganization of india and before long this vague impression crystallized into a conviction that england must take indian administration into her own hands and that the time had come for the fiction of rule by a trading company to be absolutely given up 
indeed lord ellenborough had recommended in his evidence before a select committee of the commons on indian affairs as far back as eighteen fifty two that the government of india should be transferred from the company to the crown as we have already seen the famous system of government which was established by pitt was really the government of the crown at least pitt made the administration of india completely subject to the english government the difference between pitt's measure and that introduced by fox was that pitt preserved the independence of the company in matters of patronage and commerce whereas fox would have placed the whole commerce and commercial administration of the company under the control of a body nominated by the crown by the act of eighteen fifty three the patronage of the civil service was taken from the company and yet was not given to the crown it was in fact a competitive system scientific and civil appointments were made to depend on capacity and fitness alone macaulay spoke for the last time in the house of commons in support of the principle of admission by competitive examination to the civil service of india in the beginning of eighteen fifty eight lord palmerston introduced a bill to transfer the authority of the company formally and absolutely to the crown the plan of the scheme was that there were to be a president and a council of eight members to be nominated by the government there was a large majority in the house of commons in favour of the bill but the agitation caused by the attempt to assassinate the emperor of the french and palmerston's ill-judged and ill-timed conspiracy bill led to the sudden overthrow of his government when lord derby succeeded to power he brought in a bill for the better government of india at once but the measure was a failure it was of preposterous construction it bore on its face curious evidence of the fantastic ingenuity of lord ellenborough it created a secretary of state for india with a council of eighteen nine of these were to be nominees of the crown nine were to be concessions to the principles of popular election four of the elected must have served her majesty in india for at least ten years or have been engaged in trade in that country for fifteen years and they were to be elected by the votes of any one in this country who had served the queen or the government of india for ten years or any proprietor of capital stock in indian railways or other public works in india to the amount of two thousand pounds or any proprietor of india stock to the amount of one thousand pounds the other five members of the council must as their qualification have been engaged in commerce in india or in the exportation of manufactured goods to that country for five years or must have resided there for ten years these five were to be elected by the parliamentary constituencies of london manchester liverpool glasgow and belfast this clause was lord ellenborough's device anything more absurdly out of tune with the whole principle of popular election than this latter part of the scheme it would be difficult to imagine the theory of popular election is simply that every man knows best what manner of representative is best qualified to look after his interests in the legislative assembly but by no distortion of that principle can it be made to assert the doctrine that the parliamentary electors of london and liverpool are properly qualified to decide as to the class of representatives who could best take care of the interests of bengal 
bombay and the punjab again as if it was not absurd enough to put elections to the governing body of india into the hands of such constituencies the field of choice was so limited for them as to render it almost impossible that they could elect really suitable men it was well pointed out at the time that by the ingenious device of the government a constituency might send to the indian council any man who had exported beer in a small way to india for five years but could not send mr john stuart mill there the measure fell dead it had absolutely no support in the house or the country it had only to be described in order to ensure its condemnation it was withdrawn before it had gone to a second reading then lord john russell came to the help of the puzzled government who evidently thought they had been making a generous concession to the principle of popular election and were amazed to find their advances so coldly and contemptuously received lord john russell proposed that the house should proceed by way of resolutions that is that the lines of a measure should be laid down by a series of resolutions in committee of the whole house and that upon those lines the government should construct a measure the suggestion was eagerly welcomed and after many nights of discussion a basis of legislation was at last agreed upon this bill passed into law in the autumn of eighteen fifty eight and for the remainder of lord derby's tenure of power his son lord stanley was secretary of state for india the bill which was called an act for the better government of india provided that all the territories previously under the government of the east india company were to be vested in her majesty and all the company's powers to be exercised in her name one of her majesty's principal secretaries of state was to have all the power previously exercised by the company or by the board of control the secretary was to be assisted by a council of india to consist of fifteen members of whom seven were to be elected by the court of directors from their own body and eight nominated by the crown the vacancies among the nominated were to be filled up by the crown those among the elected by the remaining members of the council for a certain time but afterwards by the secretary of state for india the competitive principle for the civil service was extended in its application and made thoroughly practical the military and naval forces of the company were to be deemed the forces of her majesty a clause was introduced declaring that except for the purpose of preventing or repelling actual invasion of india the indian revenues should not without the consent of both houses of parliament be applicable to defray the expenses of any military operation carried on beyond the external frontiers of her majesty's indian possessions another clause enacted that whenever an order was sent to india directing the commencement of hostilities by her majesty's forces there the fact should be communicated to parliament within three months if parliament were then sitting or if not within one month after its next meeting these clauses were heard of more than once in later days the viceroy and governor-general was to be supreme in india but was to be assisted by a council india now has nine provinces each under its own civil government and independent of the others but all subordinate to the authority of the viceroy in accordance with this act the government of the company the famed john company 
formally ceased on september first eighteen fifty eight and the queen was proclaimed throughout india in the following november with lord canning for her first viceroy it was but fitting that the man who had borne the strain of that terrible crisis who had brought our indian empire safely through it all and who had had to endure so much obloquy and to live down so much calumny should have his name consigned to history as that of the first of the line of british viceroys in india it seems almost superfluous to say that so great a measure as the extinction of the east india company did not pass without some protest and some opposition the authorship of some of the protests makes them too remarkable to be passed over without a word among the ablest civil servants the east india company ever had were james mill and his son john stuart mill both had risen in succession to the same high post in the company's service the younger mill was still an official of the company when as he had put it in his own words it pleased parliament in other words lord palmerston to put an end to the east india company as a branch of the government of india under the crown and convert the administration of that country into a thing to be scrambled for by the second and third class of english parliamentary politicians i says mr mill was the chief manager of the resistance which the company made to their own political extinction and to the letters and petitions i wrote for them and the concluding chapter of my treatise on representative government i must refer for my opinions on the folly and mischief of this ill-conceived change one of the remonstrances drawn up by mr mill and presented to parliament on behalf of the east india company is as able a state paper probably as any in the archives of modern england this is not the place however in which to enter on the argument it so powerfully sustained it has been the destiny of the government of the east india company says mr mill in the closing passage of his essay on representative government to suggest the true theory of the government of a semi-barbarous dependency by a civilized country and after having done this to perish it would be a singular fortune if at the end of two or three more generations this speculative result should be the only remaining fruit of our ascendancy in india if posterity should say of us that having stumbled accidentally upon better arrangements than our wisdom would ever have devised the first use we made of our awakened reason was to destroy them and allow the good which had been in course of being realized to fall through and be lost from ignorance of the principles on which it depended de meliora mr mill adds and we are glad to think that after the lapse of more than twenty years there is as yet no sign of the realization of the fears which he expressed with so much eloquence and earnestness mr mill was naturally swayed by the force of association with and confidence in the great organization with which he and his father had been connected so long and moreover no one can deny that he has in his protests fairly presented some of the dangers that may now and then arise out of a system which throws the responsibility for the good government of india wholly on a body so likely to be alien apathetic unsympathetic as the english parliament 
but the whole question was one of comparative danger and convenience the balance of advantage certainly seemed even as a matter of speculation to be with the system of more direct government it is a mistake too to suppose that it was the will or the caprice of lord palmerston that made the change rightly or wrongly it is certain that almost the whole of english public opinion cried out for the abolition of the east india company it was the one thing which everybody could suggest to be done at a time of excitement when everybody thought he was bound to suggest something it would have required a minister less fond of popularity than lord palmerston to resist such an outcry or pretend that he did not hear it in this as in so many other cases lord palmerston only seemed to lead public opinion while he was really following it one other remark it is also fair to make we have no indications as yet of any likelihood that the administration of india is to become a thing to be scrambled for by second and third class parliamentary politicians the administration of india means of course the viceroyalty now there have been since lord canning five viceroys and of these three at least were not parliamentary politicians at all sir john lawrence never was in parliament until he was raised to the peerage after his return home from india lord elgin may be fairly described as never having been in parliament unless in the technical sense which makes every man on whom a peer's title is conferred a parliamentary personage and the same holds true of lord lytton who had no more to do with parliament than was involved in the fact of his having succeeded to his father's title lord mayo and lord northbrook to whom perhaps an invidious critic might apply the term second or third class parliamentary politicians on the ground that neither had obtained very high parliamentary distinction proved nevertheless very capable and indeed excellent administrators of indian affairs and fully justified the choice of the ministers who appointed them indeed the truth is that the change made in the mode of governing india by the act which we have just been describing was more of name than of reality india was ruled by a governor-general and a board before and it has been ruled by a governor-general called a viceroy and a board since the idea which mr mill had evidently formed in his mind of a restless and fussy parliament for ever interfering in the affairs of india proved to have been a false impression altogether parliament soon ceased to take the slightest interest collectively in the affairs of india once more it came to be observed that an indian budget or other question connected with the government of our great empire in the east could thin the house as in the days before the mutiny again as before some few men profoundly in earnest took care and thought on the subject of india and were condemned to pour out the results of their study and experience to a listening under-secretary and a chill array of green leather benches at intervals when some piquant question arose of little importance save to the court official or the partisan like the project for conferring an imperial crown brand new and showy as a stage diadem on the wearer of the great historic emblem of english monarchy then indeed public opinion condescended to think about india and there were keen parliamentary debates and much excitement in fashionable circles 
sometimes when there was talk of russian ambition seeking somehow a pathway into india a sort of public spirit was aroused not perhaps wholly unlike the manly emotion of squire sullen in the bow stratagem when he discovers that a foreigner is paying court to the woman he has so long neglected but as a rule the english parliament has wholly falsified mr mill's prediction and has not intruded itself in any way upon the political administration of india End of section thirteen